south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 279, covering the week of September 13th through September 17th, 2021. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. Our YouTube page is a great resource. We have not only this podcast there that you can pick up if you want to get it in, on YouTube, but also we have all of our lectures that we have in video form. We've got our short little videos that we've done, our Abbeville U. It's a taken off a of Prager U, but Abbeville U, we've got these five-minute videos on a variety of topics. We will be doing more of those in the future. So we have a lot of good stuff there on that YouTube page, so make sure you get on that. Also, go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. Give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition. It's a great book. And, of course, you get our Daily Dose of Dixie when you get on that email list. I know it's a lot of emails, but it uh, it's a way we can keep in touch with you. So, if you don't want to read these every day in your inbox, and I understand, well, then just delete them. But we do send you information about things that we're doing, like our Zoom conferences. We will have one at the end of September. I don't know with who yet or on what topic, but it will be there. And mentioning that Zoom situation, uh, we had our Zoom conference last month in uh, in August with uh, Ron Kennedy. And unfortunately, there was a little snafu with that technological snafu. So we're going to be re-recording that. Uh, for those that paid for it, you will get that recording, and we'll probably do that in the next week or two and giving that out to you. It's why you haven't gotten a link for it yet, because there was an issue with, with the saving the recording. So anyways, it'll be back there. It just won't be the original live conference, but we'll. Um, there's going to be a special guest on that. So it'll be a little better than it was before. So just keep, an, uh, keep a, on the lookout for that if you paid for that Zoom conference. Also, you can support the the Abbeville Institute by clicking on that support tab at abbevilleinstitute.org, A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E institute.org. And you can throw a few pennies our way, a few dollars, whatever it is you've got to send. We do exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you like our podcast, our website, our conferences, our Zoom conferences, all the stuff we do, our videos, books, all that stuff, consider a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. Download our free mobile app. It's also on the webpage. You get the Abbeville Institute on the go. Click on that shop tab. Get your Abbeville Institute apparel. All kinds of great ways to support the Institute. Use, make us your Amazon Smile. We do get money out of that. Make us your preferred Amazon Smile. Uh, so if you go to Amazon Smile, you can make the Abbeville Institute your preferred nonprofit organization. So you can donate to us that way too. Painless as you shop at Amazon. You can, uh, if you buy a book or something there, you, you give us a few pennies. So it's a great way to support the Institute from Amazon, which, of course, is quite funny. All right, <clears throat> let's talk about the material for the week. A lot of good stuff. Uh, and I have to set all this up by what's happening in America right now. We know that the Lee statue came down, uh, tragically. And so on Monday, this happened you know, last week, on Monday we ran an old poem, and I'm going to talk about that at the end of the podcast because it's really, really good. We know that this weekend, as I'm recording this, the weekend of the 17th, we would have the reinterment of Nathan Bedford Forrest and his wife. The, the grave diggers dug him up, and they had to move him. So we know that's happening. Uh, and 
amazingly enough, I'm sure all these people will be on the television. They'll be portrayed as, you know, white supremacists or some other nonsense by the mainstream media. It won't be... When the Hunley crew was interned in Charleston, you didn't have much of that. This was just, all right, these people were veterans. They needed to be interned in a, in a cemetery, so let's do it. Now, they would have been traitors. We don't need to bury these people. Let's just burn them or something else. I mean, this is the climate that we live in today. Uh, I know that the, the forest graves, there was a negotiation there to where they would be handed over, and then they would be reinterned. But... Um, we have that, and then we have the news story out of Richmond where the United Daughters of the Confederacy had their museum burned, and there's no, no, no charges, no criminal charges brought against anybody. And the, the cop-out is, well, we couldn't really identify. We didn't have a strong enough case against any of these people. If this was uh, some kind of, of, of attack on a leftist building, let's just say it was, you know, take your pick of some leftist organization that had their building attacked. Well, the FBI would have not would have not left any stone unturned in finding out who these people are. They would have put out information online. Hey, s rat out your neighbors. We'll give you a reward for doing this. No, no. Uh, in this particular case, because of who it is, because the state of Virginia doesn't like the UDC, because the state of Virginia doesn't really care about uh, Confederate memorabilia or uh, artifacts or anything else, well... That's just fair game. You can essentially now, if you are someone who admires your Confederate ancestors or is, is from, you know, supports the Southern tradition, your property is now not even safe in the American legal system. This is where we are today. We know that. I mean, the statute came down. That was property deeded to the state of Virginia. It should have never come down. But your property is not even safe anymore because it's considered to be evil property. Now think about that. Think of where we are in 2021. The rule of law no longer applies to these nincompoops who are doing this stuff. That's dangerous. It's dangerous. We know we live in a, in a society now, law, you know, it's the rule of men, not rule of law. We know that's happening. This is extremely dangerous though. And so what we're starting to see, and one of the things the Institute was founded on is is decentralization. What we're starting to see is people on the left even talking about decentralization. This Jeffersonian idea of real federalism, smaller communities, decentralization. People are starting to talk about this, and we are looking at next year maybe doing a conference on secession and not just the legality of it or whether it, you know, the justification for it, but real concrete things about secession. That, uh, you know, if you're interested in that topic, and a lot of people are, you know, when you have Sarah Silverman, who is, I mean, as far left as you can get, talking about, well, maybe it's time to, to break it up. I mean, something really interesting is happening in America. And what's pushing all that, of course, is the vaccine mandate from the Biden administration. That's going to be challenging court. I'm, I'm positive of it. It probably won't work out. But you have people that are afraid, of course, of the coronavirus. They don't want to get it. They're, they're, and so they're starting to target individuals who have not been vaccinated or uh, people don't wear masks or whatever else, people that don't, don't social distance. They're targeting these people. And we're creating two classes in America again. And the left is doing this more than anybody else. 
And so we're creating another environment where it seems like you've got the people that support vaccines or who don't support vaccines on each opposite size, people that support mask mandates, people that don't, whatever it is, social distancing, lockdowns, whatever it is, you've got two different worlds now developing in America. And there's a lot of discussion about whether these two worlds are even compatible. I think that's a good question. Now, it's deeper than that, because really what you're looking at here are two understandings of liberty in America. Both believe in liberty. It's just a different kind of liberty. Those on the left who believe in the, the vaccine mandate and the masks and the lockdowns, they believe in a community, an ordered liberty that's very puritanical in its origins. It's New England liberty, the liberty of the community over individual liberty. Those that believe that, well, you should get a vaccine if you want one or don't if you won't. If you don't, they don't believe in lockdowns, don't believe in mask mandates. They believe in a very Jeffersonian, uh, cavalier slash Celtic view of liberty in that it's hegemonic or, uh, or natural freedom. It's more about natural freedom, very Celtic way of looking at it. You do what you want, I'll do what I want, and we'll be good to go. Now, the, the Quakers in Pennsylvania had this reciprocal liberty. If I demand that um, I demand freedom of speech, you get it too. And there's certainly that reciprocal liberty has really been lost in America recently. I think those on the right still try to tend to cling to that a little bit, but the left doesn't. They demand freedom of speech, freedom freedom from, but they don't want to give you freedom to. They want freedom of speech, but they don't want to give you freedom of speech. They want freedom of language, they don't want to give you freedom of language. So they've really lost that reciprocal liberty. Uh, but certainly they're interested in this freedom of the community, this fear, freedom from fear, freedom from want. That's what it is. Freedom from fear. I mean, they're afraid of the coronavirus. And look, it's a nasty virus. For a lot of people, it gets you very sick and you can die from it. So there is always that palpable fear out there of getting a, you know, a, a disease, a viral load that's going to make you very ill. But the way we're setting this up now is we've got two Americas. We really do have two Americas. And I don't know if there's any turning back from that at this point. Because of the way, and, and, and Don Livingston has made a case because of the way we think about society. And Don Livingston has made a case. We were at a conference in Stone Mountain. Uh, no, it was in Atlanta. I'm sorry, it wasn't in Stone Mountain. It was in Atlanta, but not Stone Mountain. It was in Atlanta. And uh, this, there was a Q&A, and this was asked, hey, are, are we in a situation now where we're more d divided than ever? And I said, yeah, I don't know. I mean, people were willing to go to war in 1861. I don't know if they'd be willing to do that now. Uh, I mean, hopefully not. We don't want to have any shooting. It's terrible. Civil wars are never good. Uh, wars between people in the same area, and however you want to look at it, are never good. So the, this is nasty. And Don's response was, well, I think we are more divided now. Because in 1861, you had people that generally had the same views of society. And what I mean by that is dominated by Christians. Very few people weren't Christian. So people were going to church. They might have gotten it. They might have had a different denomination or different beliefs uh, set coming out of church. But they certainly were all Christians. Uh, they had much more in common culturally than Americans do now, from, say, California to Alabama. There's no, there's no similarity from a lot of people on the left, particularly in California, to those in Alabama. So there's, there's a lot of differences there. And he thought maybe that, I mean, maybe we're at a point now where we're more divided than ever. If that's the case, isn't it time for an amicable divorce? Isn't it time for that? I mean, can't we make a case that to solve the problem, to peacefully solve these problems, because we know that things have gotten violent. 
Secession is a move of peace. It's only violent when the other side feels threatened in their legitimacy and they try to keep the other party in play. You see, when you talk about January 6th, for example, the left says this is a riot, it's an insurrection. It was an insurrection against their legitimacy. And you go back and you look at the founding generation. What was the, what was the real question there? Who was legitimate? The colonies elected people to the Continental Congress, and they acted as the legitimate government of the colonies. The British didn't recognize them as that. The Second Continental Congress, the First Continental Congress, those were not legal representative bodies, according to the Parliament. But the colonies said this is who we're following. So it's often asked, you know, how do we do these things? Well, you have to have a governing body that would be legitimate. Legitimacy is important. Important. The people support this over this. So what would happen under that idea if half the population said, Joe Biden's not my president, I'm still going to say Donald Trump's the president. The government would then, of course, side with, with Biden. But what happens if there's another Congress and another president? And this pops up. Well, we saw this in 1861, right? So we had a legitimate government in the South. It was the legitimate government of the Southern people, the Confederate States. And we had a legitimate government in the North. It's the one that the, the United States followed. And the legitimate government of the North conquered the legitimate government of the South. Whether secession happened de jour or not, it's irrelevant. It was de facto there. The people gave the legitimacy to it, just as they did in 1775 and 1776 with these Continental Congresses. So you see, legitimacy matters. This is the important thing. And it's the voice of the people. If the people themselves say that we're going to elect delegates, as John Adams called them, ambassadors, and we're going to do this, well, that creates the environment where you can do these things. So all this to say, we had a great book review this week from Terry Halsey on the book Break It Up by Richard Kreitner. Now, Break It Up is written by a leftist. He is a leftist of all leftists. This is what he is. I mean, Richard Kreitner, if you look at him on social media, he supports every single thing you can think of for a leftist to support. But yet, he supports secession. He supports secession. So, Terry Halsey has a couple of really good poll quotes. Uh, Kreitner wrote this, Tradition holds that the American colonists came together in 1776 to overthrow a detested king and form one nation, indivisible, intended to last for all time. They did nothing of the kind. The revolution was a civil war among the colonies for a century and a half. The colonies acted as if they were independent nations with little more in common than the wish to remain apart. And as he says, the first American revolution was fought not to create a union, but to destroy one. The first union in America was among the Indians when they, uh, they started a union there, the five tribes. Now, I, I, I would... Okay, the first union of what, right? So you had these confederacies, but there was some discussion about... Um, and it depends on how you think about um, you know, this concept of America. Now, if you're going to say the continent itself, well then, okay, you can look at these early uh, confederacies is America that or is it the United States of America you have to you have to think about these things 
But this is a really interesting book because he does not pull any punches when talking about how important secession was and decentralization was to early Massachusetts, early New England, and of course, early America as well. That's something we need to be talking about. That's something we need to be talking about. This idea that there is more to secession than simply the South. Kreitner actually wrote this. Most Americans associate secession solely with the South and the slavery-serving Confederacy. That lets the rest of the country off the hook as it attributes the impulse to a to break up a divided, deadlocked union in a single movement in a single region at a single time, freeing other sections that dabbled with, with, with disunionism, New England, the Midwest, the Pacific Coast, of any blame, for bringing on the fatal fracture. But the oft-old tale of monolithic northern nationalism and southern sectionalism is more a complicated reality, a richer tapestry of stories and characters with messier morals to teach us today. Now, when you look at secession in America, the earliest secessionists were in New England, as you have uh, secessionists as part of the United States, they were in New England. In fact, as early as 1794, you had secessionists in New England. And when you think about American history, and we'll get into this with, with the last piece of the week by Paul Yarber, all this stuff is together. One thing you could say is, why, why don't people learn about this? Why aren't people learning more about Northern secession? Why did Richard Kreitner, a leftist, think it was necessary to write this book? This stuff should be known. People should know about secession, about decentralization, independence, all of these things. They should know about this stuff. It doesn't mean that not, uh, all these history teachers out there in secondary schools, and they're not teaching this stuff, because I know some of them are. But they should really know about these things. But what do you get? Most of the time when you get this talk of, of decentralization, secession, he brings it's, it's going to be slavery and uh, segregation. That's what you're going to get. Because people remember 1963, and they remember George Wallace, and they remember uh, John C. Calhoun in the South. And they say, well, decentralization has always been about race and slavery. What if that's not true? What if somehow the story is bigger than that and more complex than that? What if the historical establishment doesn't really know what it's talking about? And I mean, I know these are rhetorical questions because this is all true. What if that's the case? What if at the end of the day, America has been taught a bunch of, of lies? And when, I'm, when I say a bunch of lies, if you go into your American history class, and this is what Paul Yarborough was talking about in the last piece of the week, writing history without history. Writing history without, writing history books, I'm sorry, without history. We're not taught. We're not taught the Jeffersonian position of America. We're taught the Hamiltonian position. And when you're taught that position, a couple of things come out. One, secession and decentralization and federalism are always used to support states' rights and slavery. Always. Always, always, always. And two, 
the the real problem in America wasn't the nationalists. They were the dominant group. The real problem in America were the Jeffersonians, the decentralists. They're the real problems. Those are the guys that are causing all the problems in American society. From the beginning, those are the guys that are causing all the problems. Because you see, the nationalists were the dominant group. Well, this what if this wasn't true? If you go back and look at the ratification of the Constitution, you'll find in that that the people arguing for ratification were generally arguing in terms that anti-federalists, quote-unquote anti-federalists, would have understood. That the document should be interpreted very strictly. That uh, the general government wouldn't have any powers that aren't delegated to it. This was the dominant opinion. It was a federalist, decentralized position. The states retain all powers not expressly granted to the central authority, which is something that that word expressly, even Hamilton used that word, right? So the real fly in the ointment from the founding period forward was not the Jeffersonians. It was the nationalists. It was the Hamiltonians. That's not what you get, though, when you take your mainstream history class. No, 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 no. Daniel Webster was speaking for all of America when he's when he made his speeches against the tariff and, of course, later in the Compromise of 1850. Daniel Webster was the man that spoke for America. John C. Calhoun, Thomas Jefferson, these people were not. Not at all. They were the radical others who only wanted to have states' rights and federalism because they wanted to enslave people. What if that's simply not true? What if the entire narrative of American history should be flipped on its head? What would that do to the political class? What would that do to the establishment? What would that do to all of that? Well, it would destroy it. If people figured out that the entire system is rigged against them, that the central authority is never going to shrink in power, it will only get bigger. If that's what people figured out, well, and they didn't want that, well, you would have real problems in America because the government would lose legitimacy. This is what they're worried about more than anything else. They're worried about losing legitimacy and power. Once you get power, you want to keep power. So we've got a situation, of course, in America that is everything is upside down. Now, Southern education used to teach all of these things. And there was a little piece that we published on Thursday, a little piece. It was a little longer. And... Um, the South and the Building of the Nation series, where it got into Southern education. And this is something, again, that uh, Don Livingston's brought up in some talks about how educated the South actually was. If you listen to the mainstream, well, the South is uneducated. Nobody knows anything down there. There's a bunch of hayseeds that just sit around. If they're, they're poor, then they've gotten, they don't have anything, and they sit around and you know chew hay. If they're rich, well, then they drink uh, mint juleps and just sit on the veranda and watch the nature all day. They don't do anything else. These people don't, they're so stupid they can't get out of their own way. This is exactly the impression you get if you read what people say about Southerners. But what if, what if that's not true? What if the South is very well educated? And this piece on Southern education gets into that. I mean, it, it, it discusses 
how well-read the South and how educated some of the leading members of Southern society actually were. Much more educated than what you would think. That is interesting. That lends the idea that Jeffersonianism was not some you know hayseed thing that just came out of, uh, well, I'm just going to make this up. It's real. It's tangible. It's something you can get your hands on because people act on it. Right? And what did the Robert E. Lee Monument in Richmond symbolize? Well, it didn't symbolize racial oppression and segregation. No. It represented defiance to the center. Real legitimacy. It's why they got to take it down. It's why they have to take it down. It represents real, tangible legitimacy. And when you take that down, you erase what that was supposed to do. Lee was a sentinel guarding the South. And this was legitimacy. So I want to read... As we finish up today, I want to read the thing we published on Monday, the piece, Lee Memorial Ode. It's written by uh, James Barenhope, and he died in 1887, just before this, the cornerstone of this monument was put there. And... Pope wanted, I mean, the, the poem is much longer than what we have here, but Pope wanted something that would endure like the monument. Nobody could have fathomed in 1890 when this thing was finished that within, you know, 130 years it would be taken down. Nobody fathomed that because there was a mutual respect that we just don't have anymore. So I want to read this part. I mean, it's beautiful. This was published in 1880. It was written in 1887. This was uh, from the Confederate veteran of 1914. And this is what Hope says. And hence today, my countrymen, we come with undimmed eyes in homage of the hero Lee, the good, the great, the wise, and at his name, our hearts will leap till his last old soldier dies. Ask me, if so you please, to paint storm winds upon the sea. Tell me to weigh great Cheops, set volcanic forces free, but bid me not, my countrymen, to picture Robert E. Lee. He was all the Norman's polish, and sobriety of grace, all the Goths' majestic figure, all the Romans' noble face. And he stood the tall exemplar of a grand historic race. Baronial were his acres where Potomac's waters run, high his lineage, and his blazon was, cunning heralds, was by cunning heralds done. But better still, he might have said of his works, he was the son. Truth walked beside him always from his childhood's early years. Honor followed as his shadow. Valor lightened all his cares. And he rode that grand Virginian last 
of all the Cavaliers. As a soldier, we all knew him, great in action and repose, saw how his genius kindled and his mighty spirit rose when the four quarters of the globe encompassed him with foes. But he and his grew braver as the dangers grew more rife. Avaracious they of glory and most prodigal of life, and the army of Virginia was the atlas of the strife. Then came the end, my countrymen. The last thunderbolts were hurled, worn out by his own victories, his battle flags were furled, and a history was finished that has changed the modern world. As some saint in the arena of a bloody Roman game, as the prize of his endeavor put on an immortal fame, through long agonies our soldier won the crown of martial fame. But there came a greater glory to that man supremely great when his just sword he laid aside in peace to serve his state. For in his classic solitude he rose up and mastered fate. He triumphed, and he did not die. No funeral bells are told, but on that day in Lexington, fame came herself to hold his stirrup while he mounted to ride down the streets of gold. He is not dead. There is no death. He only went before his journey on when Christ the Lord wide open held the door, and a calm celestial peace is his. Thank God forevermore. And here today, my countrymen, I tell you, Lee shall ride with the great rebel down the years, twin rebels side by side. In fronting such a vision, all our grief gives way to pride. Those two shall ride immortal and shall ride abreast of time, shall light up stately history and blaze an epic rhyme. Both patriots, both Virginians true, both rebels, both sublime. Our past is full of glories. It is a shut-in sea. The pillars overlooking it are Washington and Lee. And a future spreads before us, not unworthy of the free. It's a beautiful poem. And of course, the both he's referring to is Washington. Beautiful poem. Imagine someone writing that today. And imagine Lee and Washington looking out and seeing what New Virginia is and thinking, well, at least Washington, what have I done? And Lee saying, well, I tried to stop this. This is why Lee Lee's Monument. It's there for defiance. It's there as an example of a good Christian man. And this poem gets into that. It's their example. Hope was getting into that. Lee as the example, the exemplary man. He's gone now. And future generations, unless they get their history from their families, which is where it really needs to go at this point, because you can't rely on the history profession, history teachers in high schools and colleges to do it. 
but you can't rely on that. So unless they get it from their families and from people that still admire Lee, the fact that he's gone means that Lee is almost literally gone from memory. And when you erase the memory, you erase the man. Until next time, good day. <laughs>